Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, you could turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3 as we read God's Word and uh, open it together. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read uh, actually the entire chapter, which is only 22 verses, not, not terribly long, but uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, probably a familiar passage for many of us. I'll give you a second to turn there, and then we will read, read God's Word together. We'll hear now the word of the Lord, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray God's blessing on our time. Our Father, we thank you uh, that in your light we see light. And so we ask that you would uh, send forth your spirit into our hearts and into our minds, God, that you would uh, cause our hearts um, to love the things that we see uh, here, to love you, Lord, uh, that we might see you more clearly with the eyes of faith and follow you more nearly. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as many of you likely know, uh, time is a very precious thing. Uh, The famous um, business guru, guru Peter Drucker, in his book, The Effective Executive, he points out four characteristics of time that make it so remarkably precious. He says, first of all, that time is inelastic, meaning that no matter how great the demand is for time, the supply does not increase. He points out also that it's perishable. You cannot store time. What you don't use, you lose. 
Uh, Moreover, time is irreplaceable. Oftentimes in life, you can substitute one resource for another. No half and half, whole milk will have to do. But not so with time. What you don't use, what you can't substitute anything for. And finally, time is necessary. It's a universal condition. Everything takes place in time and uses up time. And so, as Peter Drucker therefore implies rightly, in order to live well in the world, you have to think clearly about time. Now, for Peter Drucker, he is concerned with creating effective executives, uh, not our goal this morning. Uh, But our goal this morning is to hear what the preacher from Ecclesiastes has to tell us because he is concerned with creating wise people. Wise people who know how to live well in the world. And if you want to live well in the world, then you have to understand how you relate to time. And so we can summarize the preacher's message this morning by really looking at two principles that he sets down, two principles that we will unpack. Uh, And the first principle is this, that as humans, we are creatures bound by time. And the second principle is that God is not. God is not. Verse 14 says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. And so it's grasping these two truths that really provide us a foundation for living well and for using our time well. Understanding that in the face of the march of time, we are frail and we are finite. And yet, there is a God who controls all things who knows all things, who's planned every time and every season. And the way that the preacher unfolds this for us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is, first of all, by way of a poem. Now, as I was reading that, it's probably a poem you've heard read before. It's read at the funerals often of both Christians and secular people alike. And it's this poem that many feel just beautifully captures the kind of rhythms and cycles and, and balance in the world. But if we only read the poem, then we don't really get the full point that the preacher is trying to make. It's a point that he draws out for us through uh, verses 9 through 22. And so we're going to begin by appreciating this poem and trying to hear underneath all of its symmetry and balance this message that that can often be missed on us. And so the preacher opens in verse 1 with this summary statement, right? For everything there is a season, a time for every matter in heaven. And then he gives us this poem, which strings together 14 pairs of different opposites. And taken together, these pairs are meant to describe for us a kind of reality in its totality, everything that could take place under the sun. And the opening pair marks for us the boundaries of our existence, right? A time to be born and a time to to die. The entire life cycle in just 10 words. All of your days. He even compares it to plant life, right? A time to plant and a time to to pluck up what is planted. And he moves from this overall picture, a time to be born, a time to die, and he goes down all of these different particulars of life. And you can hear this kind of ebb and flow, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that, as he's moving through. But as you look real closely— what you begin to realize that there doesn't seem to be any discernible pattern. Uh, There's no pattern of progression. You you don't really know what is the connection between this pair and that pair, 
right? For example, uh, what is the pair between, what is the, the, he talks about tearing and sowing and then keeping silence and speaking. And you ask yourself, how did he go from, you know, uh, crocheting to conversation? What is the connection being made here? But I don't think it's unintentional because isn't so much of life like that? We go through our days, we go from this season to that season, and you're trying to make sense of it all, and yet you can't. You often can't find a predictable pattern. It feels like you're almost at the mercy of time. It's marching on, things are happening, and you're asking yourself, how did I get here, and where am I going? And do I have any control of how all of this is falling out? I remember a friend of our family who was, just, who was 21 years old. We know we just celebrated uh, individuals graduating. Well, this young man was 21 years old. He had just graduated uh, from college. He'd just taken his last exam on a Tuesday night, and he was preparing to head home uh, to meet with his family. It's a time for celebration, a time for dancing, a time for joy. But that Tuesday night, as this young man was, was driving back to his parents, he fell asleep behind the wheel. And he veered off the road and was killed. And you just think, how, how could this happen? You know, here, it's a time of celebration. He's, he's at this ripe period of his life. And just like that, he's gone. And so often, this is how life is. We, we think we're in control. And then these moments just sort of blow right into our plans, and, you, and you, it's disorienting. And now that's, of course, a very tragic, a very um, extreme example, but you can even see this in, our, in the more mundane. Right? Just take, think for a minute about your daily planning. How many of us wake up in the morning with a plan? And we, we go about trying to make decisions. Maybe you write your top three goals for the day. But then when you zoom out, things just start getting all crazy, right? And so much of what's listed here in this, in this list, you can't even plan, right? No one says, 30 minutes of laughing on Monday. Uh, we'll have an hour of embracing on Friday. Uh, I would like to experience no weeping on Wednesday, but if we have to mourn, at least let it be a Thursday. It's not how we operate because life isn't like that. We're sort of swept up in what so much feels like just a stream of time. And yet we're trying to get a sense of permanence, a sense of security, a sense of control. But we can't. Because another season of life is coming. Another time will arrive and we don't really know when it will come or how it will come. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong in their reading of this, of this poem. Because for all of its symmetry and its rhythm and its, its balance... What it's really trying to show us is the unpredictability of life. That there's this constant shifting of time and there are limitations to our existence. That as much as we can plan, there is so much that we can't do. And the preacher drives this point home. He lists all these poems and then he raises a question in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? What gain, right? So much of us want to gain in life. 
whether that gain is uh, securing for ourselves a sense of significance, a sense of security, a sense of happiness and control we want to gain. And the preacher says, but so much of life you can't even control. And so you go through life and you experience a range of emotions, a range of different relations, and some are better than others, right? You embark on that ambition, you lose a friend, you gain a friend, but at the end of the day, as the preacher says, all of us will die. And so this poem does capture the subtleties of life, the seasons of life, but hanging over all of it is this first line, a time to be born and a time to die. And what's so striking is we don't control either. None of us brought ourselves into this world, and we don't know when we will leave it. And so as you first read this poem, you think, wow, what a bleak poem. (laughs) What a bleak message. But we have to see that this sort of bleakness is not just cynicism. It's not just pure cynicism, but the preacher is actually trying to teach us something. And what he's trying to teach us is that we need to be realistic about life and realize how little control we actually have. Not for the purpose of driving us into despair or sort of stirring up in us anxiety, but so that we might actually experience joy and that we would see life not as something to be gained, but as something to be received, something that is for us a gift. And that's the point that the preacher drives home in verses 9 through 15, which is the second massive truth that we need to understand to live well, and that is that God is not bound by time. You see it in a couple of places throughout this section, and the key verse is probably verse 11. Verse 11 reads, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Right? Here are our two principles that we are bound by time and God is not. And it's an opening sentence that reflects on verses 1 to 8 and sort of shows us the man behind the curtain. You remember that scene in The Wizard of Oz when the curtain is removed and you see the man, right? Because as you're reading the poem, you might be thinking to yourself, who's in control of all these times, right? It's just a time for this, a time for that. And you, and you think, well, who's doing this? Is there someone orchestrating this? Are we sort of uh, just kind of simply products of random chance, just molecules bouncing back and forth against one another? Or perhaps the goddess fate is just ruling and reigning over it all. But the preacher says, no, there is someone who is orchestrating it all. It is God himself. And so verses 1 through 8, this poem really show us kind of the tyranny of time. Here in verse 11, we see the beauty of God's comprehensive control of all things. What is often referred to as the sovereignty of God. A great and precious truth for all of us to really lay hold of. A truth that reminds us that life is not a random mass of ever-changing events with no discernible pattern. Now you may say, from my perspective, it feels like that. It feels random. It feels out of control. But there is a God who is in control. A God who has planned every moment and who is weaving together this beautiful tapestry 
of time. And that word beautiful, I think, can be a, a bit misleading. When you hear, when you and I, at least when I hear beautiful, I think sort of aesthetics, right? Someone is beautiful or a beautiful sunset. But as you read this poem, you might think to yourself, how is war beautiful? Uh, how is hating beautiful? Well, I think we can clear this up by realizing that the, the word beautiful is less the idea of uh, something is aesthetically pleasing, and it's more that things are appropriate. Or fitting. You could translate it as God has made everything fitting in its time. And so what this means is that God has a plan and established everything so that when you take all of the parts together and you add them up into the whole, it is rendered beautiful. Now you and I can't do that. We are stuck in the stream of time and we can see only so far in front of us and so little behind us. But we are caught up in God's grand thing that he is doing. He's making everything beautiful in its time. You know, I've mentioned kind of this image of a tapestry, but I've, I often like to think about it as a puzzle. If you've ever done one of those puzzles, maybe, you know, think 100 piece, 200 piece plus, and you open the box and everything is just a mess. There are pieces everywhere. And, and so often, life feels like that. There are just puzzle pieces all over the place. And you're trying to find the corners. You're trying to figure out, how does this go with that? Does, did I get the wrong puzzle pieces? Like, did someone forget to put a piece in here? That moment, right, when you wonder if they gave you a defective puzzle. And so much, so often, life can feel like that. But the great truth of the Christian faith is that God sees the whole thing. God is holding the lid, right, as it were. If you've ever tried to do a puzzle, what's the first thing you do? You put the lid right in front of you so you can see the whole, and then you try to make sense of the mess that's before you. Well, for us in life, we don't have the lid. We don't see the whole picture. We just have these pieces. But there is indeed a lid. There is a whole picture, and God holds it together. He sees all things. And of course, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it helps us to begin to grasp the truth that there is a big picture. And there is a God who sees it. And there is a God who is bringing together all of the pieces of your life and my life and the lives of those whom we love to bring together this beautiful picture. And so, the call for us as creatures who are bound by time is not to live by frustration, but to live by faith. To live by faith in the God who knows all things, who is in control of all things. The preacher says that God has placed eternity into our hearts. Right? All of us have been fashioned for the eternal. We have been fashioned for the things that will not ever end. And so we are fashioned for permanence. We want to permanence. We want security and steadiness. And yet he says that he has put eternity into man's heart, yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. But just because we can't figure it out, it doesn't mean that God is not up to something. But that is really, uh, can really lead to um, a bit of confusion and frustration. Right? How am I supposed to live? Okay, fair enough. I'm bound by time and God is not. But how do I live in light of these Principles. Well, I think there are uh, a number of options or a number of ways people go. I think the first way sometimes people go is to deny that there really is a God who has comprehensive control of all things. 
And on the one hand, uh, while this may give us a sense of, well, I'm in control, I'm the master of my fate, as you live long enough, you realize that things are really out of your control. And so you have to essentially uh, cede control to some kind of deterministic process that is sort of just running things out and you're, you're, you're stuck in fate. I think for others, and perhaps most of us in this room, our tendency is to acknowledge that God controls all things, but then we live with a kind of practical atheism. Where we say, God, I know that you are real, I know that you control all things, but then you rush around in life anxious, flurrying about from this to that, trying to get everything in order because you don't know how to rest in the God whom you say controls all things. And so you profess faith in God's comprehensive control, but then you try to grasp control over every detail of your life. But the third option, the option which the preacher is calling us to embrace, is to accept with a heart of faith that there is a God who has control over all things and to rest, to rest in his sovereign arms. Now you might say, yes, I want to choose that option, but I still feel so anxious. I still feel so frustrated. I still feel like I can't make sense of this world. And and it's true, right? Our hearts, they are prone to doubt. And so how do we know that God truly makes everything beautiful in its time? How do we respond when we don't feel that all things are working together for our good? And these are good questions. And the Bible does not give us specific answers, but what it does give us are two specific times, two uh, seasons or events that kind of help us orient ourselves in life no matter what season or time we find ourselves in. I like to think of these as sort of the corners of the puzzle pieces. If you have these corners in place, then you can begin to make sense of everything else that's going on. And so what are the kind of two corners of the biblical story, the two times that frame all time? Well, the first time is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul puts it in Galatians 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Right? Paul says that when the fullness of time had come, Jesus Christ came. And what this reminds us is that God is not just in a position of power and control. You know, often when you speak about God's sovereignty, it can often make people uncomfortable because they think, well, what's he up to? Is he sort of just this despotic, tyrannical man who just controls all things and is throwing us around at his own will? Well, no. Paul reminds us, the whole Bible reminds us that God is in control. He has a plan and is a plan to bring about the redemption of humanity. That his plan, which centers on Jesus Christ, is a plan to redeem us. To bring us out of darkness and into the light. Right? As you go through life, you and I are, we live, as Ecclesiastes talks about, under the sun. Which is a way of saying that we live in a world that is fallen, a world that is broken, a, la- a world that is trapped under the curse. 
And by nature, we are people who hate God and hate one another. We may dress it up in different ways, but that is essentially uh, the, the nature with which we walk about. We believe the lie of the serpent. You can be God. But the good news of the Christian story is that in the fullness of time, Christ came. That he came to save us and to redeem us. And this wasn't just Paul's understanding, but this was Jesus' own understanding. Listen to how Jesus describes his own ministry in the beginning of it all. In the Gospel of Mark, he says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. Every time of life, every season of life, all of it is oriented around this moment. The moment when Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man and he preached the gospel of the kingdom and he brought in the gospel of the kingdom through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. So that although we might live in a world that is under the curse, a world that is filled with frustration and toil and anxiety, that he has opened up for us the gates of heaven. That what was once closed by sin has now been opened up by grace. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have to understand that this is the time in which you live. You live in an era when Jesus Christ has brought in his kingdom. The kingdom of God has broken into history. And what this means is that for those who are in the Lord Jesus, sin and death no longer dominate you. You are no longer under the tyranny of the evil one. But you have been made a son, a daughter, a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so you can know life under the rule of your gracious king. So this is the first time around which we must all orient our lives. But it's not the only one because as the preacher observes in verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw that under the sun, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And we know he's not wrong. There is so much injustice in the world. There's so much that remains yet to be set right. And so you might ask, how can you stand up there and tell me that God's kingdom has broken in to history when most of what we experience in this world is suffering? How do you expect me to believe that Jesus Christ is king when it feels like he has abandoned his throne. And those are real feelings. You look at the other believers around the world who suffer far worse than you and I uh, ever do. And there's no simple answer, but we can start where the preacher starts in verse 17. He says, I said in my heart that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. In other words, yes, injustice may abound. Yes, wickedness may seem to rule the day, but just as there is a time for every matter under heaven, so the time is coming when God will bring all things into judgment. And so if the first uh, time that we have to orient our lives around is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, the second time is the final resurrection the return of Jesus Christ, the moment when he will come and the kingdom that has broken in will be established fully and finally. 
the moment when Jesus will bring a new creation, when he will wipe away every tear, where death will be no more, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more pain, but we will dwell with him in perfect peace forever. Saints, that is the day that you are waiting for. It's the day that ought to give structure to and inform how you view your lives. So often in the New Testament, Paul is always talking about those who love his appearing. He says in Thessalonians that the the Thessalonians were those who turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his beloved son. These are the things that are supposed to inform how you live and how you move in this world, that there is a time when Jesus will balance the scales of justice. When you will reign and rule with him and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is structuring your time? What, what sort of serves as your point of reference as you move through life? Are you longing for the time when you will be retired? Are you longing for the time when you will uh, be married or perhaps have children or, or grandchildren? Are you longing for the time when you'll be the top performer in your division? What are you hoping for? What time is informing how you view your life and the way that you move through the world? Well, I can assure you of this, that it, if, if it is not the time when Jesus Christ will come and make all things new, you will be disappointed. Because you could get married, you could have the kid, you could have the grandkid, you could retire, you can become the top performer, but the time will come and the time will go and you will not be able to get that quest for permanence that you so long for. But for everyone who sets their hope on the new creation, for those who set their hope on Jesus and the new heaven and the new earth that he is bringing in, you will not be disappointed. And so if it's true that our times are in God's hands and that Jesus Christ has not only died but he has risen for your sins and he will return to set all things right, how do you live in the present? Right? If that's what Jesus has done in the past and the future day is coming when he will make all things new, what should you be doing now? Well, let me offer you briefly two things. The preacher gives us in verses 12 through 13. He says in verses 12 through 13, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil for this is God's gift to man. And so how should you live? Live a holy and happy life. A holy and happy life, accepting all of the gracious gifts that your Father has given you. And so let's consider these two things in short. First of all, the preacher says that you should be joyful. When you really grasp that you have a God who exercises comprehensive control of everything, that there is, as uh, R.C. Sproul was uh, fond of saying, no maverick molecule in the universe. When you grasp them, that, not just at the cerebral level, but at the level of your heart, then you find rest. Life is so uncertain. It is so uncertain. And trying to 
figure it all out will only leave you anxious. It will only drive you to despair. But the heart of the Christian can rest in the hands of her sovereign God. And you can know that he is a good God because in the fullness of time he sent his son to live for you, to die for you, to be raised for you. And so, brothers and sisters, always remember that God is at work and he is orchestrating all things toward the end of his glory and your eternal good. That he has a plan. It's a plan to gather for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to enjoy unbroken fellowship with him. In a world free of sin, free of injustice. And so take confidence in that. But not only are you to be joyful, the preacher says that you are to do good. You know, sometimes people read Ecclesiastes and they come to these moments when he says, eat and drink and take pleasure, and they think, oh, this guy's just a hedonist. Just grab life and do it because we're all going to die anyways. But that's not his point. He's saying you are to enjoy life as a gift because you know that there is a God who is in control of all things, and you're supposed to also do so in a way that brings glory to God, right? You're supposed to enjoy life, but how you enjoy life matters. Our happiness is really to be found within the the confines of God's gracious law, that he has a design and a purpose. You know, so oftentimes people will think, I'll aim for happiness, and if being holy kind of contributes to that, then maybe I'll, I'll try to do that as well. But the preacher is saying, aim for holiness, and in that you will find happiness. Because there is a God who has designed the world in such a way, and that when you live within the grain of the universe, you experience flourishing. But if you go against the grain of the universe, you will only get splinters. And so to live within the confines of God's gracious law, that's where we experience happiness. That's where we experience good. And so the the day is coming when God will bring all things into judgment. And so be people who do good. Who pursue uh, justice and who love mercy and who walk humbly with your God. Who manifest in your life that Christ really is your king and that that fact actually informs how you live. And so this is the point of Ecclesiastes 3, to acknowledge that you are not in control, but that there is a God who is. And that he's a good God. And that he has a plan. And it is a plan to bring all things to their culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so be joyful. Enjoy Italian ices. Enjoy your family. Enjoy every good gift that God has given. As Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. And rest in him. Wait for him, for he will make all things new. Let us pray together. Our sovereign God, you hold our times in your hands. God, we know that even before the foundations of the world, you chose us in Christ and you've promised that what you have begun in us, you will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so what have we to fear? And yet, God, we confess that our hearts are prone to worry. Our hearts are prone to be, to be anxious and unsettled. When we consider our world, the, the evil, uh, the chaos, it can feel like all things are falling apart. It feels like the center will not hold, but we know that it will because you are the God 
who holds it. And so help us, grant us the faith to trust you, to live lives full of joy and to do good, knowing that you will bring all things into judgment. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.